ladies and gentlemen, we're the Blues Brothers. On a mission from God to warn you about spoilers in this upcoming podcast. Are you the police? No, ma'am. We're musicians. Welcome to Diabolical, the show where four long-suffering friends dissect films most dastardly schemes, then try to improve them. I'm your host, Ben, and this week's movie is musical juggernaut, The Blues Brothers. So throw on your black ties and Ray-Bans, and let's get Diabolical. from God. What do you mean musical? <laughs> what did you watch? Uh-oh. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the show. As usual, I'm here with three of the world's most renowned skiffle musicians, otherwise known as the Panel of Peril. Please introduce yourselves and tell us your blues nickname. We'll go in alphabetical order. First Bender, then Flexo, then Fry. <laughs> Hello, dear listeners. Adam here, and my uh, rhythm and blues name is Old Tedious Howlin' McName. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Hopefully Craig's worked out how alphabetical order works. I forgot that you said we were doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Craig here, and my diabolical name is... Oh, no, sorry, you're Cowtacular. My diabolical name. <laughs> you handsome bastard. You have to give yourself a compliment now, or, or degrade yourself. Actually, that's the if you get your na- if you get your own name wrong, you have to say something shit about yourself. <laughs> but my blues name is Shining Red Bottoms. <laughs> and I'm Gaz, and my blues name is Bumlump Gazzy. <laughs> say that again. <laughs> Bum lump gazzy. Bum lump. Yeah. Bum lump. That's Bum lump. Uh, our our daughter Isabel's uh, insult that she came up with when she was about three. When we were having like a play <laughs> argument, and she was like, "Yeah, well, you you you're a bum lump," and we've never stopped saying it in oh. the uh, nine years <laughs> since. <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, yeah, I guess I guess really, it's like if you look at somebody with trousers on, they've got a bit of a lump in those trousers <laughs> at the back end, then they've shit themselves. So mm. it's kind of like a, mm-hmm. you have to think about yeah. it. It's a quite a good insult. No, no. Or, or they're tucking themselves. Yeah. 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 Do you tuck yourself much, Gaz? Uh, nah, not as much as I used to anyway. Back in my younger, <laughs> younger days. Same. Same. Times, mate. <laughs> <laughs> they said it would get easier with age, but it hasn't. It's got harder yeah. Yeah. And my blues name is Fiddlin' Ben Slim. <laughs> also your jail name. It's nothing to do with the violin. <laughs> Later, we'll be competing to see who can come up with the most diabolical scheme and earn base-tacular peril points for the diabolical leaderboard. But first, let's boogie-woogie into this week's movie. Yes, I got that one. I wasn't sure yeah, if I'd be able to get it first really time. Yeah, nice, well, really nice. Really nice. Yeah, lovely. 
Mm, nice. Released on the 20th June. Uh, fucking hell, I got that one wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Released on the 20th of June, 1980, The Blues Brothers was the first movie to feature characters from Saturday Night Live and became one of the best-loved comedy hits of the 80s, grossing $115 million against a budget of $27.5 million. The film stars late, great John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd as Jake and Elwood Blues. Two brothers on a mission from God to save the orphanage they grew up in by putting on the show of a lifetime. The brothers must first get the band back together, whip up a crowd and get to the venue on time, all while being hunted by a mysterious woman, white supremacists, country singers and the Chicago PD. Directed by John Landis, who had previously worked with Belushi on Animal House, The Blues Brothers features a cast that reads like a who's who of music and movie greats. Some of the faces you might recognise include James Brown, Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin, Carrie Fisher, John Candy, Frank Oz and Steven Spielberg, to name just a few. Not to be outshone, the film also contains spellbinding musical and action set pieces, including a number of memorable high-speed chases which led to the destruction of a then-world record 103 cars. It's a loud, proud, car-smashing tribute to Chicago and rhythm and blues that gets my foot a-tapping every time I watch it. But does the panel agree? Countertacular. If you had to play your review of this film on an old steel guitar, would you play it in an uplifting major key or a downbeat minor key? Well, to completely ignore... What you said there. Um, oh, bitch. <laughs> the Blues Brothers is one of those cult phenomena that I could never understand. And I knew I knew it was popular and I've tried to watch it before and just thought this isn't for me and, and you know, watch clips from it and I don't know. But this is the first time I've properly watched it all the way through from start to finish, uh, and I thought it was excellent. I really loved it. I love all of the musical set pieces, and for me, all the comedy hits. So whatever you said, the good one that you said, I was doing that with my guitar. You were playing the major key. <laughs> yeah. That's what I like to hear. I'm really glad to hear that. That's great. I've been told that I, I look quite a lot like Dan Aykroyd. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that. I don't see it personally. <laughs> yeah. You look about as much like Dan Aykroyd as the Ray Ghostbusters figure used to. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't was meant to look like him, of course. You you penciled <laughs> in to look like Robin to go with your Batman. You already talked about that on this podcast. Oh, You're fucking senile, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had you know it's probably about four episodes ago. So <laughs> yeah, people have forgotten that by now. <laughs> Oh, great. Okay. Gaz? Ah, it's too friggin' long. It's the first film that we've done where I've had, I've had to break it into two. Really? Wow. Yeah. I, I was... Uh, well, as long as it. Sl- slipping into a coma is too har- harsh of a phrase to use, but I... <laughs> I was not enjoying it, to be honest. Still very funny. The music's still good. But God damn, just speed it up a bit, Landis. Fucking hell. <laughs> I think it was an extended version I watched as well. It was two and a half hours, which I don't remember it being yeah, that long. Yeah, that's the one I watched as well, yeah. Um, no, yeah. The short version is two hours 13, and yeah, the extended is two hours 28. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's good. I tell you what, I didn't remember uh, Dan Aykroyd's uh, moves on the stage. I was like, "Fucking hell!" Yeah. Yeah. All I think about him as is sort of like uh, the comedy, slightly overweight Ghostbuster. But back then, you're like, "Jesus Christ, he's yeah. got some moves, doesn't he?" He can still move as well. He oh was yeah, on. yeah. And obviously, it was mainly his project, wasn't it? In yeah. terms yeah. of the music and and whatnot. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. I'm not going to be in a rush to watch it again. I've never watched the sequel. And I, I never will. No. Um, Me neither, actually. No. <laughs> Don't think many people have. But, you know, who knows? <laughs> ne- next time I do watch it, maybe I'll enjoy it more. You never know, do you? Mm. Adam? Uh, well, just to follow on what Gal said there about the sequel, you said earlier that 103 cars were wrecked in this film. Uh, and then 104 in the sequel? 104? They ramped it up? 104 <laughs> wrecked in the sequel, but that's also the amount of people that watch the sequel as well. So, <laughs> uh, Wait, is that, is that a real fact? Because I was just making that up. Is it no, really 104? No, it, it was, yeah. It is true. It's not, it was, it, 104 were wrecked in the sequel, yeah. 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 I also read it was 104 in the first one and 105 in the sequel, but no, however they did it, it was one. It was, it was one over, yeah. Wow. As a tribute. There's a lot of cars. Well, I'll, I'll just say this. It's in my top three musicals of all time. Ooh. And one of my first notes is, this is my kind of musical. You know, when they go into some of the mu- musical segments and stuff, it's just, it doesn't feel like forced. It just feels like there's something that gets going in the background. And it's like a wave that comes forward and yeah. pushes them into these musical numbers. Yeah, Musicals tend to follow a bit of a, a pattern, don't they? And a, and a thing where they start talking and somebody twinkles a key on a piano. Yeah. yeah. But this, it just flows. And I love it. And I love that. I love rhythm and blues and stuff from the, the, old, the, the old style like that. They call it R&B now, but it doesn't resemble that at all. And the way it influenced rock and roll going forward and as we all probably love various bands that have been inspired by some of the people in, that were in this movie. I, I really enjoyed it, but I definitely would agree with Gaz that some bits I was just like, yeah, come on, let's let's get through this bit now. Come on, we need to we need to move on a bit quicker. And the crashing is uh, all the car crashes and stuff. It's typical John Landis. He, I think pretty much in every everything he does, he destroys vehicles. <laughs> so He's got a good track record for it, and this uh, this film is probably his uh, magnum opus for that. So, yeah, really, really loved it. It was an easy watch for me. Yeah, I'm glad to I'm glad to hear you say it. For me, yeah, it's an absolutely joyous film from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, until you flagged that, Gaz, I didn't realise the length at all. I had to go back and check <laughs> it quickly then because <laughs> it just flies by for me, absolutely flies by. I'm just watching it with a grin on my face the whole way through. Yeah, absolutely love it. Mm, yeah, I, I hadn't considered what you'd said about the way that the song, um, the songs, well, how am I going to say this? The musical numbers? The sequences. The way that the, the, the songs flow. Yeah. yeah. I hadn't considered that while I was watching it, but now that you said it, it rings really true. It yeah. did just sort of seamlessly flow into the songs, whereas in most musicals, you, they are quite telegraphed. But yeah, that's mm. really the way the way you described it as coming in waves. It's really, mm. really good way of putting it. Yeah, they just—they yeah. seem to find themselves in these situations where there's music happening, or uh, right. you know, or somebody goes, "Right, I'll, I'll, I'll show you this," and it's not like, "Well, I'll tell you a story about fucking this and that." Blah, it's blah, slightly blah, blah, different like to <laughs> what you consider a classical musical, though, isn't it? Because they're not—it's not, it's not yeah. like 
a fantastical music sequence. They are actually no. a band actually singing a song to yeah. usually yeah. usually yeah. A, a crowd of people. But I think it's true also of the sequence of the gospel when they go into the church and mm. you know the scene of Aretha singing to her husband. The way that mm-hmm. it, he, he described it, it comes in, in waves and before you know it, mm-hmm. the, the musical numbers started. You didn't even know it was starting, but you're in yeah, it. Yeah, you kind of swept up in them. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's, that's it, cool. exactly, yeah. Um, what I was going to say to you all, actually, and I probably already know the answer, guessing from what, what you've just said, is have any of you seen this production live in a theatre? No. No, I have not. I think I probably would, in fairness. I really yeah, I would, like would. After this, <laughs> after this viewing, I was thinking... They still tour it every so many, every so often you see it somewhere. Constantly touring, yeah, like Rocky yeah. Horror, never stops. So it's so it's it's huge, and I'd just love to go to one of them. And I was wondering, I was thinking at the end of the show, and I've not thought about it properly before, probably because I'm th- I'm thinking more critically about movies now, especially since we started this. Is when they piled into the Palace Hotel at the end, and um, everybody's watching. Would in the show, would all the actors who were the cops and the Nazis and stuff be in the audience watching at the back and stuff like that. And how would that go off and, and things like that. Mm. And I was just like, Oh, this would be so, so good to see live. And I really, I'm going to look and see if I can find something um, because it just inspired me. The only thing I've seen live so far where um, it sort of comes out into the audience a bit is actually the, the Lord of the Rings musical that played uh, in Drury Lane for six months or so and oh, yeah. orcs and Orakai came out into the audience and stayed there wow, for the yeah. duration of the um, the first interval. It was really cool. Let's take yeah. them back to Isengard <laughs> to show Star of the Ring. <laughs> Master Frodo, I'm going to cook a sausage for you, Master Frodo. <laughs> Oh, Master like Frodo. It's back on the menu, boys. <laughs> <laughs> All right, before I ask you for your highlights and favourite lines, we're going to play a little game I'm calling the Howling Triff Train. I'm going to read you movie factoids with some bullshit thrown in for good measure. If you think it's true, say, Can I get an amen? If you think it's fake, say, It's dark. And we're wearing sunglasses. <laughs> okay, Dan Aykroyd's script for the movie, or his original script for the movie, was 324 pages long. Well, considering the discussion we've had, can I get an amen? Now, I'm thinking about this in one of two ways. I know he's... Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's a 50-50. I know his Ghostbusters script initially was ridiculously long. So I'm wondering whether that's just a thing he does or whether you're tricking us with the, with the Ghostbusters story. So I don't know which way to go. Oh, I like I like that I'm making you question yourself. That's good. <laughs> yeah, double bluffing you. I'd say it's true, whatever the true version was. Going oh, I'm going to go, can I get an amen? Yeah, can I get an amen? Yeah, you're all right. It was true. <sighs> he said, I really didn't know how to write movies. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd ever seen a screenplay before. And his first attempt at the Blues Brothers script was more than double the size of a typical movie. <laughs> He delivered it to the producer wrapped in the cover of a San Fernando Valley Yellow Pages because it was as thick as a phone book. <laughs> so he tried, he tried to lighten the mood by wrapping it in a phone book cover. <laughs> and obviously it was whittled down from there. All right, the next one. 
The Mission from God storyline was suggested by John Belushi after an epiphany he had well high. Trying to get an amen. I think what if I know anything about John Belushi, he likes to party. He likes he likes to party. That Eddie Murphy song is about him. John Belushi is, is Eddie Murphy's girl. It's dark and we're wearing sunglasses. Can I get an amen? Okay, well Turner, you have you got it right there. It was actually John Landis's idea. Um, and the director says he was inspired to include it by Aykroyd's real life love for the blues music. He was so fervent about it that um, John Landis was inspired to, to put that storyline in. Hmm. But staying with John Belushi and his partying ways, his cocaine habit helped the movie go over budget. Is that true or false? Can I get an amen? It's dark and wearing sunglasses. Well, that sort of presupposes that he was allowed to buy cocaine with film budget, <laughs> which seems implausible. So it's dark and we're yeah. wearing sunglasses. I'm pretty sure I've heard this story. Well, it is in fact true. The Blues Brothers was originally budgeted for $17.5 million, but it ballooned up to $27.5 million, in part because of Belushi's growing (laughs) cocaine use caused production to stall. Oh, I see. I thought you meant he spent $10 million on coke. Mm. (laughs) Well, (laughs) listen. He he doesn't look like a very well man at some points in the movie. I, I was thinking, I was like, he really doesn't look very well. Well, did die. well, actually, so. during during the performance, he had quite a bad injury. So when you see him on stage, he actually he actually goes for it. But backstage and when they're walking through the tunnel, you see him limping. He had actually quite badly injured himself for that. And he just mm-hmm. kind of forced himself through it. Hmm. But at one point, Landis went into Belushi's trailer, found a mound of coke on the table, started flushing it down the toilet, and Belushi walked in. But knowing they couldn't replace him, the studio decided to deal with it. And Dan Aykroyd said years later, they had a budget in the movie for cocaine for night shoots. But Landis kind of downplayed it and said they only lost about four or five days in the six-month shoot due to drugs. But still, that's a fair whack. It was the style of the time. Yeah. (laughs) Which, of course, was the style of the time. If you you know about uh, how Belushi went out as well, it's um, it's all about him getting money exactly. to, to do drugs. Mauled to death that. by a cocaine bear. Fighting over the same mm-hmm. the same line. I was going to say, by a rabid badger. <laughs> yeah. Alright, so let's move on to our favourite moments. Gaz, could you kick us off? Yes, I can. The, the thing that I like the most in it is like the, the Looney Tunes type stuff. So, outside the climactic <laughs> gig, when they're creeping along very archly. Uh, striding in between the guards and the spotlights yeah. swirling around. I like that sort of pantomime. And the very final part of the car <laughs> chase when the Nazis are, are right behind them, driving over the bridge, and he slams it into reverse and the car flips and flies through the air. Yes! And then, the, right. <laughs> then the Nazis drive off the bridge and it flies for a bit and then it oh. just drops seemingly for about five minutes and then <laughs> breaks through the road. Yeah. Yeah. He goes, I've always loved you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was an amazingly realised sequence. Like, really good VFX. Yeah. It's fucking yeah. Yeah, to, to get that effect, they uh, they lifted a, a Ford Pinto to 1,200 feet with a helicopter uh, and just let it yeah. drop. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so those kind of... Heightened, slightly Looney Tunes comedic moments. I like. There's a few with um, mm. 
sort of violent moments as well, but that may or may not yeah. come into my plan later. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave those out. Mm. All right. Counter-tacular. I think my favourite scene was the the scene where they're in the kind of country dive bar and they play Rawhide because it's like the only <laughs> yeah. country song they know. That was really funny and, and really well done. But I also really love, not the immediate opening because that was weird and moody as fuck, but the choreographed march out of the prison and the way that as he gets closer to the exit and he gets to pick up his clothes, he starts drumming his fingers and the music starts coming back into his life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you like Frank Oz's cameo there? As the, mm, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. As the yeah, horrible the bastard. Yeah. <laughs> I did. You were talking about um, all the faces you might recognise, but did you recognise um, one of the troopers uh, in the car is uh, X from X-Files. Yeah. Mulder's informant. Stephen something. Oh, right. Yeah. Not catch yeah. That one. And good. you missed out another musical star who does make a, a very fleeting appearance in the evangelical Choir, Shaka Shaka Khan, yeah, Shaka Khan, Shaka Khan. I didn't think anyone cared enough, so I did because I was was like, she just she gets about five seconds on screen, and I was like, who the fuck is that? And then I I looked in the the cast, and I was like, fuck, there's loads of people, and there she is. It's like, all right, there you go, that's who it is. Well, one one other person who who was a star to me and who I always love seeing and things, Paul Rubens as the waiter, Paul Rubens. That was a quick little cameo, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, super quick, but quite visible. Yeah, yeah, Adam. Well, I'd say my favourite sequence and my favourite line, <laughs> the combined, is the bit where they're in the office of the nun, and uh, she tells them about their tax problems, and he, <laughs> and um, Elwood just says, "Well then." I guess you're really up shit creek. And then, like Gaz was alluding to before, there's that slapstick moment. It's like, ah, fuck shit. Ah, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just that bit. And and just the whole delivery of the line and then everything that comes after it, it's just brilliant. And I just, I was howling. It was great. Uh, Yeah, that scene is absolutely brilliant. It's just such a great inciting incident. It's Yeah. It just sets the whole story in motion and it's uh, it's great. (laughs) They call it the penguin. Mm. Yeah, those desks at the back as well when they're sort of dragging them over to her. Well, that's quite a funny <laughs> little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm surprised. I thought your your highlight would have been the chase scene in the mall. I would. That's incredible, isn't it? I was going to give an honourable mention to the mall police chase as well because it is just gratuitous destruction. But also their deadpan reaction to it as well. Yeah, they like just pointing out the shops that are in there, disco pants and haircuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they just just smash into stuff. So that chase scene took place in a real shopping mall. Yeah, yeah. It, it was uh, it was the Dixie Square Mall in Harvey, Illinois. Yeah, wow. which had been recently closed due to crime and gang activity in the area. Oh, sweet! How fortuitous! <laughs> and so the empty mall was filled with actual merchandise from stalls, with the promise that any merchandise undamaged would be returned. Mm. Yeah, and after the film crew destroyed it. It was never renovated and was eventually torn down in 2012. Bloody hell. So it stood empty for a good 30 years. 32 years. Yeah. Christ. You know, um, the bike slash lorry chase in The Dark Knight, just a very brief moment where Batman goes through the shopping mall on the bike, just shooting everything through. Mm. That always reminds me of the Blues Brothers. (laughs) It's only about five seconds, but it just straight away always just... uh, 
brings it to mind. Probably my absolute favourite is, is the scene with the nun. But I'd say a close second, just to bring another one into the mix, is when all the police, the fire service, they're all piling up outside the tax office. They just build it up more and more and more. There's, yeah. there's hundreds and hundreds of people chasing them to this tax office. It just, just makes me laugh. And they just stick a filing cabinet in front of the door and a dustbin. Yeah. And it holds them all yeah, back. Yeah. <laughs> that is one of the standout features of this film is where they manage to mass so many people together in various points. And you're thinking, Jesus, they don't do that that often in modern films these days. Mm. I'd rather just go, let's just get 50 people and CGI everybody else in. And and yeah. I guess Landis at the time, because he, he was, especially with like some of the dance moves and stuff like that, and you can think about the thriller and stuff like that, he was kind of like, I guess, maybe a bit of a master of his craft with directing groups of people and stuff like that. I don't know. Um, well, he seemed to have... a an inclination for that anyway. Yeah, this is one of the reasons why he was picked for Thriller. But he was hot off the back of Animal House, which has quite a few Mm. kind of big scenes as well. Yeah. Like parade and things. Yeah. So yeah, he kind of honed his craft in that way. Yeah. I think what he's great at in this is the action. You know, the the other car chase at the end is incredible as well. But (laughs) there's there's some stuff where he's technically a bit naive, like... uh, there's a, a dialogue exchange between John Candy and X from X Files. Feels incredibly stilted. It feels like it's a different, completely different setup. Like they were shot on different nights. Hmm. Bit disjointed. Yeah, possible they were, isn't it? And and Candy was improvising his half. Mm. Yeah, that is very possible. Actually. Yeah, I, I think I'm not usually one for car chases. I mean, they're fine and they're part of it, but I don't really like sit forward and go, "Oh, car chase." <laughs> these ones, yeah. I really mm. did enjoy and. Yeah, I think there's six in the movie throughout, and and all of them were were done with like real stunt actors. Mm. Apparently, there were thirteen blues mobiles in total mm. that were used throughout the making, and one that was built to just fall apart. Which you'll remember the scene where the car just falls to pieces. Yeah, yeah, and the filmmakers got permission to drive down the main street at over 100 mile per hour. They had to get special permission, yeah. but yeah, that. They were really doing these high speed chases. You can tell it's real. Like yeah. I've seen sped up footage of car chases, and that wasn't this. This was, you could tell they were speeding. It was exciting to watch. Right. How about some favourite uh, musical numbers? You can choose one each. I'm going with Aretha because she's Amazing. fucking brilliant. And her co star, he can't hide his genuine pleasure, even though. She's yeah. meant to be in character giving her husband shit. He's just got this huge grin on his face as he's watching her go. And I, I was feeling the same. I was like, oh my God, she was such a master at work. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's mine. All right, Turner, what was yours? I would say the evangelical church bit and my note straight away was, I wish I believed in a God because the way that people, mm. you know, just waiting for Reverend James Brown to take control and to give them what they want, their fix of this religious power through through song and stuff like that. And it, I just found it just overwhelming. Well, Adam, maybe that is God. Yeah, but no, I don't think so. I think it's just human <laughs> emotions. I think it's just... Yeah, yeah man uh, man created God, but God exists because man created God. God, God go. created dinosaurs. Dinosaurs ate yeah. God. Man ate God. Dinosaurs ate woman. <laughs> Fleas inherit the earth. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you see the fleas? <laughs> Gaz, what was your favourite musical number? 
I like Cab Calloway. Oh, you cannot help, can you, but sing the Heidi Highs. I love it. Heidi, 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 Heidi. It just popped out yeah, of me. Yeah, it is magic. Yeah. Magic. And he gradually gets more difficult. Yeah, yeah, he's doing full on scat. <laughs> Yeah. I, yeah, I like how dapper he looks as well because he, he basically looks yeah. like the Blues Brother earlier on, doesn't he? And, and then he's out in right. the white yeah. tail tux, I suppose it is, and his yeah. hair's out, yeah. and it's like um, brill creamed and floppy, and he looks yeah. well cool. Yeah, I love the, the whole scatter, the jazz, that jazz era and stuff like that. Ella Fitzgerald does it loads, doesn't she, as well? So mm. it's yeah. just something I, I really like that when when it's just swept up by the music again. And they just got to vocalize whatever they're feeling, but they can't put words to it. It's just brilliant. I love it. Yeah. I like how they play that in contrast to what you were saying earlier. That is the one bit that that plays like a fantasy sequence because obviously at the end when he's done performing, he's back in the in the blues suit. Yeah, mm. but it really works for that bit because they didn't use it elsewhere. That's another thing this film's really good at, actually is like restraint. We were all saying how great all the slapstick is, and I think it works really well because they play it very straight. They play it deadpan, like. You know, Carrie Fisher blows up their whole building with a bazooka and they just get up and dust themselves down and carry on like nothing happened. The only reaction they have is when they see there's loads of change on the floor after the phone booth explodes. <laughs> Seven dollars here. <laughs> Did anybody else see that James Brown and Rita Franklin and not too sure about Cab Calloway, but the Ray Charles as well, perhaps I think, found it quite difficult lip syncing in the film because that's not something mm that they'd ordinarily do. They they sing the songs slightly differently yeah. every time, so they really struggled right. with the yeah. sing. Oh, well. I always found that quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think Aretha, definitely you could see, yeah. Yeah, mm. but it didn't diminish the power of the scene. In oh, no, definitely, definitely not. I didn't even notice it, to be honest. Uh, That's an interesting point. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you guys. My favourite is uh, Minnie the Moocher. I, I love it. I've always loved that. Mm. Just the, the turn... On his heels, as you say, he just looks amazing in the white suit, and yeah, I love it. Yeah. Do you have any favourite lines, Count Attacula? Uh, there's, there's two. Am I allowed two? So it's two with you, isn't there? Well, <laughs> at least two. <laughs> I already did one, so technically it's three. He used to be indecisive, but now he's not so sure. Uh... <laughs> Don't run away! Don't run away! <laughs> One's a big one, I think it's just too obvious, which is, uh, are you the police? No, ma'am, the musicians. Just the iconic line, like a trailer yes, line. But the, the, the slightly quieter one that I really love is when Mr. Fabulous is working at the restaurant desk in Shea Paul. He gets a phone call, he says, uh, no, sir, uh, Mayor Daly no longer dines here. Uh, he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> Gaz, any favourite lines? Okay, I'll go for the candy one first, which feels like it's probably improvised because it's very, very random. Oh, you got two, have you? Uh, uh. (laughs) (laughs) Ben said lines then. He specified lines. So I'm taking that as more than one. Yeah, the gig at the end, uh, John Candy, uh, when he and his cops sit down and he just goes, points to each one and says, orange whip, orange whip. Three orange whips. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely bizarre. Licorice whip. Uh, <laughs> what was the other? Oh, the other one is uh, in the restaurant scene when um, mm. 
Belushi is trying to rile up the snooty people at the next table over the Monopoly man and everything. And he winds up just saying, how much for the little girl? And I was like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. That's just a, an outright pedo joke. I was like, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was the style at the time. Yeah. It was acceptable in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, they also were sharing shrimp Acroid bites the end off and throws the rest yeah, in Belushi's mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the chemistry between those two really, really makes the film as well. Um, yeah. And so Belushi, despite being from Chicago, had no interest in the blues. And that was all introduced by Dan Aykroyd. Mm-hmm. And then they went on to form the Blues Brothers, obviously. And they actually had to convince Lorne Michaels on SNL to allow them to do straight up blues numbers because they didn't want to do kind of parodies. Mm. Mm. He took some convincing, but obviously in the end he he allowed them to do it and the comedy came out in, in more around the characters. But uh, they, they always wanted to do the blues straight up and all down to Dan Aykroyd and his almost kind of mania for the, for the music. He, mm. he, when he met John Belushi, he just couldn't believe this guy from Chicago, like one of the homes of his favourite music, had no interest in the blues whatsoever, so he was just, he kind of got him into it. He's an interesting character, Dan Aykroyd, isn't it? You can see, like, yeah. he, he's obsessed with certain things, like the, the paranormal and the blues, and his, yeah. his crystal head vodka. Um, there's a podcast yeah. called <laughs> Off Menu with James Acaster, where he, he did a guest spot and he just hijacked the entire episode. He wouldn't shut up, didn't stick to the format or anything, just pushing his vodka and... <laughs> It's crazy. Absolutely nuts. But um, in, a, in a very likable way. I am a fan of, of Aykroyd. Similarly, I watched a clip on YouTube of Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray and Ernie Hudson on a talk show in, what's the other guy? Seth something, the late show with Seth somebody or other. Seth Myers, yeah. Is that where he does the dance? Yeah. I'd watched that before. I'd watched the Blue Brothers, so I knew that he'd still got the chops for it so it was really good he was mm. just doing dancing to it like a, a drum solo he was it was really really funny but it was quite a nice yeah. little interview as well but they they unfortunately only hudson doesn't really get looking he just sort of sits there <laughs> and, and <laughs> <laughs> it's quite quite interesting dan Ackery because he was he and carrie fisher actually got engaged during the, the shoot mm. yeah they, they never ended up getting married mm. but uh when when Carrie Fisher passed away, he did speak very fondly of her. Mm. Um, mm. They were already in a relationship, and I think they got engaged mm. during during the shoot. Mm-hmm. There's just so many kind of stories that kind of underpin this whole the whole film. Yeah, you know, you, you could read into it for for days. It's more than just you know. Obviously, there's the musical element of the legends of music being in there, but then there's the, the also the SNL connection. So there's like a two two threads running through it, if you will. That's the way I thought. About yeah. Anyway. Who was your favourite cameo? The one you mentioned in the intro, Spielberg. Got to be, hasn't it? Seeing Steven crazy. Spielberg pop up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I think all of the um, the music stars acquit themselves really well in terms of their yeah. acting. It's yeah, quite surprising yeah. to me that, yeah. as far as I'm aware, they didn't really do much else after that. Aretha Franklin particularly is excellent in her yeah. scene. Yeah. yeah. And Ray, Ray Charles yeah. too. I, I was gonna say Ray Charles. Yeah, I really yeah, liked. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. But it's 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 amazing, isn't it? You, the way they 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 brought them all together, and Ackroyd must have must have sold it mm. to him. 
surely. He yeah, must have I think it was his yeah. passion. You can imagine him pitching it to them, saying, I want you on this movie, I love you so much. Mm. How would you get on if you were making a film with your, potentially with your musical heroes on board? What would you do? You'd probably sit down with them and say, oh, I love, you know, this track on this album. And they'd be like, oh, shit, he does know my stuff. And, you know, and then they'd be like, yeah, I want to work with this guy. Yeah. I'd just tell Tom York, I'd just say, yeah, I don't like creep either. And and then immediately Radiohead would love me. Kid A? Yeah, it's the best album you've ever done. <laughs> yeah, Dan Aykroyd was like a kid at Christmas, I think. Yeah, again, there's so many layers to this this um, this production. And it, it's just a wonderful thing. Yeah, great pick. Thank you. Right, now it's time to move on to discuss the villain's plot. As the Blues Brothers embark on their mission from God, they rack up an impressive number of enemies, including a mysterious woman with access to deadly weapons, a chapter of Illinois Nazis, and Bob and the Good Old Boys, a country band who are never far from their shotguns, all of whom are desperate to exact their revenge on Jake and Elwood. So, Adam, what did you think of the various schemes? Did any of them pat Mustard. Well, uh, the only one really I thought Pat Mustard is the mysterious woman because she obviously had a plan. She tooled herself up but was pathetic at executing it. Pathetic. So kudos for her for the plan. But um, yeah, the rest of them were just winging it, weren't they? And they were just getting telephone calls. They're here. Oh, let's go. And that was it. And there was no no planning from the cops or from the Nazis or the, the good old boys were just chasing them in a camper. So, you know, it was, it was bullshit, really. So Yeah, it was very wacky races, wasn't it? Yeah, so kudos to the mystery woman. Mm. <laughs> Kaz, what are your thoughts? Similar to, uh, to Adam's, it, it feels like there's lots of opportunities where someone just could have swooped in and got them basically any way they would have liked a big butterfly net. Yoink! There you go, got you. <laughs> or God, I hope that's your plan. I hope that's your yeah. plan. Or a blow dart. This, certainly yeah. during the climactic gig, any number of people could have just got them then mm-hmm. while they were performing on stage. But mm-hmm. they're all so uh, so nicey nicey about it, letting them perform. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So not great plans. IMO. Yeah, it was almost as if the plot required it for the for the show to go ahead. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> right. Cataclysm. You could say that about every film we do though, couldn't you? Yeah. Of course. <laughs> um yeah, in complete agreement, only the lovely Carrie has a decent crack at it. And they only survive because they're cartoon characters. By all rights, they should have died more than once by her hand. Yeah. But the others had no plan to speak of and mm. no skill to wing it either. Yeah, I agree. Carrie Fisher's mysterious woman was probably the closest and for that because she did a bit of planning and got some crazy weapons, bazookas, remote bombs, and machine guns. Flamethrowers. Flamethrower, of course. I'll give her <laughs> three florets of broccoli. Three? Mm. I think you're very scary. stingy there. Very stingy. Yeah, I would have given it four. Yeah, yeah, I'd say at least six. Well, that's the uh, that's the beauty of the broccoli rating system. There's always there's always room for discussion yep. and debate. <laughs> <laughs> Right, before we move on to the diabolical schemes, I have a little message I'd like to share with you. Before we go any further, I'd like to talk to you 
about a thing called subscriptions. And a little review. I know you feel me. You know what to do. Just get on the damned interwebs and write us a few. A two, three, four, five star reviews, yeah. Okay, this is the part of the show where we compete to see who can come up with the best evil scheme to earn precious peril points for the diabolical leaderboard. We'll each share an alternative plan and vote for our favourite at the end. The mysterious woman, the Illinois Nazis, and Bob and the good old boys try to catch the Blues Brothers to exact their revenge. But Jake and Elwood are always one step ahead. Gaz, what would you have done differently? My plan begins just after the mystery woman has exploded the DOS house that Jake and Elwood are residing in. Now here's the clever part. Instead of just giving up at that point, she follows them closely and continues to try and neutralise them. During the first cop car chase through the mall and that, she straps a giant red rocket to her back whilst wearing roller skates, mind you. (laughs) before lighting the fuse and waiting to catch up to the bluesmobile. Unfortunately, the mystery woman has failed to account for the rocket's distinct lack of steering, and she whizzes off at high speed, unable to control her direction of travel. She shoots past the police cars and the blues boys before smashing into the wall of an adjacent shopping complex in a big puff of dust and smoke. By the time she's brushed herself off and gotten rid of the tweeting birds encircling her head, Jake and Elwood are long gone. She explodes the shopping complex before leaving. At the flask factory, or wherever it is that Elwood works, she attempts to take him hostage as collateral to get to Jake by leaving a conveniently placed mound of cocaine on the floor along the gantry which she knows he walks along. Upon clocking said marching powder, Elwood bends over double to cast his peepers upon it closely. What he doesn't see is the noose-style rope around it that will scoop him into the air and hold him upside down by his ankles. Elwood pulls a miniature dustpan and brush from his pocket and sweeps the yuppie sherbet into a ratty-looking baggie and steps out of the roped area and on with his day. The mystery woman is annoyed and confused. She puts her hands on her hips with a big humph before promptly being lassoed into the air by her own trap. She then swings back and forth with her arms folded sternly for several hours before being cut down by a foreman, and then she explodes the factory upon leaving. When next she catches up to the blues outside the building that hosts the climactic gig, as the blues are sneaking past the various guards, the mystery woman seconds herself atop a neighbouring roof. There she has erected a medieval-style catapult with a large rock nestled nicely onto the... What, the pult? Is that what that bit's called? (laughs) Once the Blues boys are within the firing range, she lets it rip, slicing the rope that holds the artillery in place with her trusty sword that she has. However, however, there is a complete failure to launch, and the besuited boys just about make it to the church last gig on time. So she's left once more looking a right pranit. Her frustration boiling over, the mystery woman climbs atop the large rock and jumps up and down with fury. Naturally, at that point, the contrabulous fabtraption launches both the rock and her far, far into the distance, just far enough that nobody hears her exploding yet another innocent building. (laughs) Finally, the mystery woman catches the boys head-on in the sewers like in the film, but they can't see her standing right in front of them. 
for she has been a heavy investor in the sciences and has come into possession of a shrinking ray and has, in fact, shrunk herself to a wee size. She grabs onto Jake's ankle and caterwauls up at him. I've got you now, but what do I do with you? He slowly looks down at her, now a giant in her minuscule presence, and freezes. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that this turn of events would necessitate a lengthy conversation on how the mystery woman came to be this size, her various failed attempts to murder the blues buggers, and just what she intends to do with them now. <laughs> a long enough conversation that would mean they would miss the deadline to deposit the five grand? Oh, you betcha, buddy boy. You betcha fucking ass! <laughs> <laughs> is it the end yeah <laughs> so what happened at the end there it's basically <laughs> what it is uh, you might you might have caught that all of her schemes are based on uh, Wiley Coyote attempting yeah. to catch Roden I, I, I did get a whiff of that yeah <laughs> and so the, the way that she catches the blues at the end uh, is the way that Wiley Coyote catches Roadrunner where he shrinks himself ah. and he just grabs onto Roadrunner's ankle <laughs> ah, I never saw that one. No. It's on YouTube. Ah, okay. So, is the end of that cartoon that Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote have a lengthy conversation about how and why he shrunk himself? It's um, <laughs> me, me. It's basically how I've written it. He he holds up a sign saying, "Okay, I've caught him. Now what do I do?" And he's got a knife and fork in his hand okay. and a neckerchief on, <laughs> and he doesn't know what to do. <laughs> so, mm. I've extrapolated. That um, in this situation with the Blues Brothers, that they would just have a a long conversation about all the madness that's been occurring. Well, I do remember Turner's plan got disqualified for being a total ripoff. So, guys, you're out already. (laughs) (laughs) Here's what I think. I think no, they would not have a conversation about it. No, he ditched her in the conversation they were having about their relationship. He doesn't give a shit about Mm. her. In mm. fact, he, he doesn't remember her. Yeah. Well, that's fine. But would you not be interested in this tiny woman that's holding onto your ankle? Not at a time like this. No. Got a bigger fish to fry. Got to get the money to Steven Spielberg before he goes ape shit. My mission from God. You know what happens when you shrink people and get them to do sexual favors for you? They usually expand again inside your Jap's eye and explode <laughs> you. <laughs> I'd be like, uh, listen, it's really fascinating that you've shrunk. I'd love to have a lengthy <laughs> chat with you about it, but. Right now, I'm busy. I've got a mission from God, and you know that has driven my every action for the last two and a half hours. If you really want to talk, we've got quite a long drive to the uh, right to the tax office. <laughs> Hop in, yeah. <laughs> or I'll just pop you in my pocket. Well, then she'd say, "I've got your kids. I've got your kids." Mm-hmm. All right. Any more questions for Gaz? No, I've already written him off. <laughs> I've disqualified him, so. <laughs> no, that was joyous. Yeah, it was great. All right, Countacular. Okay. Damn them no good sorry sons of bitches call themselves the Blues Brothers. Riding into town, playing their so-called blues. Country music is the music of pain, damn it. Country blues is the only blues I recognize, except the blue on the flag, of course. If there's two things I love, it's my country and my country. But them sons of mules is lower in a snake's belly in a wagon rut, besmirching our good name. 
Well, we're going to do the exact opposite to them. We're booked solid for the next stretch of road, and the best revenge will be to play the best damn music of our lives. We're packing in the hits. Our set list includes... I'd kiss you goodbye, but my best friend's dick is still in your mouth. (laughs) She took the pigs and my hog. Your neck was red, but your heart was black. If wishes were horses, would you still be riding your ex? She was number one in my heart until she went number two on my chest. (laughs) And islands in the stream. (laughs) Word spreads and (laughs) after a few nights, we're known from Indiana to Illinois as the greatest old-timey country western act in the tri-state area. And the name of this act? Why, the Blues Brothers, of course. Them boys gonna be sore and a whore's ass in a new saddle when they start getting booed off of more stages expecting real music. Don't take long for a crazy chick and a bunch of neo-Nazis come snooping around our shows. So we explain the situation and start to incorporate them into our act. The woman puts on a mean display of sharpshooting, while the neo-Nazis rile up the crowd talking about fine Republican values. <laughs> now... Ain't no way in hell any fancy-ass chicka-goin' agent gonna book and act with the connotations the name the Blues Brothers brings for the Palace Hotel Ballroom. They're out of luck, out of money, and out of time. Maybe they'll write a country song about it. So, in a nutshell, my plan is to play all the gigs as brilliantly as we can, but say that we're the Blues Brothers, so that it ruins their reputation as a blues band. But then also to do lots of Nazi stuff in the act uh, to make sure they do not get booked for the palace. Ah, that was the bit I was unclear on. Yeah. What venues <laughs> would they be playing? What, the uh, the good old boys pretending to be the Blues Brothers? Yeah. Every venue from Indiana to Illinois, as I said. So I think like Bob's Bunker and, and similar country venues wouldn't have the Blues Brothers just on name, I imagine. Mm, but they don't reveal their name until the end of the act. That's yeah. important. So, so they just yeah. go in and say, uh, what band are you? I'll tell you at the end of the act. No, they just say, hey, we're the band, like the Blues Brothers do when they go mm-hmm. in. I see, okay. We're the band, and they do that, and then they play all this, all these incredible hits. They were joyous. Number one in my heart, number two on my chest. Yeah. <laughs> I think some of the, I think they might actually go down quite well, some of those hits, especially in that um, redneck bar. Mm. So. That, yeah, that's the point. They build themselves up as this brilliant country act ruining the Blues Brothers' reputation as a blues band and then also uh, as non-Nazis by having lots of Nazi stuff in the act. So there you go. They don't get the money. I, I, I yeah, it, it, yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, the Blues Brothers, they go and get the Palace gig from their old contact. In sound yeah, home. and he when it, what happens when they go to see him? He's the fancy-ass chicka-going agent and they go... Uh, you're going to put us on the stage and he's like, look, I honestly can't. All this stuff's going around town about how, A, you're a fantastic country western act, but B, all this Nazi shit. And they're like, that's not us, that's not us. And you go, it doesn't matter. I'll lose my reputation with the palace if I book the Blues Brothers tonight. You can't play here. Okay. They look a bit different to the uh, good old boys, though, don't they? It doesn't matter. This is all word of mouth. They're not on YouTube or anything. This is just mm-hmm. word of mouth spreading mm-hmm. through the tri-state area. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you heard this great band, 
the Blues Brothers that's going around with all this Nazi shit. And they'd be like, no, that sounds interesting. Is there anywhere I can watch a video and see what they look like? No. This is 1980. Not for another 30 years, I'm afraid. <laughs> this is 1980-something. People turn up to their gigs that went to, like, um, Bob's you know, bunker or whatever it's called. Well, like, court reporters, you do drawings. No, they don't. doesn't happen. They'd be expecting the Blues Brothers, as in, like, the old country and western Nazi people. And they'll go, well, those guys on, sta- on stage aren't the, the, uh, the Blues Brothers or whatever. Not enough Nazi yeah. symbolism. Yeah. <laughs> well, this this all happens after that one gig that they play at a country dive bar out of desperation. Mm. This all happens after that, obviously, because the yeah. revenge starts for me with the good old boys. So. Yeah. What's the time frame of that? Like two days? How many gigs do you reckon you could get? It's you a few. Pack well, the whole time frame <laughs> of the film is eleven days, and there's no. It doesn't catch you up to speed on how long it's taken yeah. for them to get where they are. Yeah. So it could be anywhere. Like a week to okay. sort of yeah. ten right. days. Yeah. So you you could you could whip up a, a bit of a, a frenzy in that time. Mm-hmm. All right. I think just one one bad gig and one small article in the Pioneer would would you know yeah oh blacklisted pretty quick. It isn't that these are bad gigs? It's that they're exceptional gigs, but they are for a country western slash Nazi crowd. Mm. Not your Chicago fancy ass crowd. Yeah. All right, Adam. What would you have done differently? Well, I'll tell you. Please do. The mystery woman. Who is she? What is she? What does she want? How does she keep getting these weapons? What's her favourite colour? Why did Jake stand her up? Why does she still look sexy in a big cardigan? We (laughs) don't know the answers to roughly half these questions, and we probably never will. However... (laughs) She has been relentlessly pursuing Jake and Elwood throughout the film, but despite using an array of unnecessarily heavy weapons, she can't seem to get close enough to bump them off. Nice idea, poorly executed. It's time to play Jake and Elwood at their own game. To prepare for his release and her vengeance, Mystery Woman takes trumpet lessons. Knowing that her former beloved has a weakness for all things rhythm and blues, She goes to see Ray at Ray's Music Exchange and he points her in the right direction, or at least he thinks he's pointing her in the right direction, for a music teacher and, at the same time, sells her an affordable trumpet to learn with. After a couple of months, she's coming along nicely and her teacher is pleased with her progress. She's even managed to pick up a number of R&B staples. To continue her musical progress, she joins a local band, the Hillbilly Bugger Boys and Girls, <laughs> a rotating ensemble of musicians on the music scene in the great city of Chicago. Mystery Woman also adopts the same attire of the Blues Brothers. Black suit and tie, black hat, but a pink shirt. Yes, the pint-sized musician looks the part and establishes herself as one of the standout figures of the scene. Not just her dress sense and her energetic trumpet solos, but her mysterious character when not on stage. Back at her apartment, alone, she works in secret on her vengeance weapon. Finally, Jake is released from prison and the countdown to the fatal reunion is on. She hears that the legendary Blues Brothers are getting the band back together again and decides she might make an appearance at their gig. Mystery Woman is going up close 
and personal this time, because this time it's personal. She convinces her band and their fans that this is a big occasion and the biggest bands in the area should welcome the Blues Brothers back to the stage and help them raise their money and turn the gig into a real party. At the Palace Hotel, the audience are flocking in to watch the Blues Brothers' first gig in a long time and Mystery Woman and her band are heading in too, fully kitted up and ready to join the Blues on stage. Tonight, though, Mystery Woman is playing to a different tune. During the performance of Everybody Needs Somebody, she and her band strut out onto the stage to accompany the Blues Brothers in their horn chorus. As the Blues Brothers move backstage in an attempt to escape, Mystery Woman follows. She reveals herself to Jake and Elwood in the classic movie style, removing her hat, then her sunglasses, <laughs> and shaking her hair loose to reveal her familiar face. Jake is stunned. Well, well, well. Looks like I'm finally going to be able to blow you away. Mystery Woman reveals a secret weapon. A modified trumpet that shoots out deadly blasts of sound. <laughs> As she brings the instrument to her lips, she produces a shockwave so powerful it would make legendary trumpet players Louis Armstrong and Miles Davis wince. It hits the brothers and instantly caves in their chest cavities, causing them to vomit their internal organs up in a horrible death rattle. They fall to the floor, dead. Mission complete. Mystery woman is chuffed to bits. Chuffed to <laughs> bits. All right. Any questions? I've, I've run a few in my own head and then I just ditched them. <laughs> That's probably wise. Is this a... A special modified trumpet that is capable of yeah. creating uh, flesh shredding sound waves, or is, has she got such a great lung capacity that she generates the sound it's waves? Both. It's both. It's both. Oh my! It's God. both because he's in he's in clink for a long time, and she knows he's in clink for a long time. So she got an awful long time to learn the trumpet and actually become like a master of the craft and. It helps that obviously she wants to get her own back on him, and that's her passion, and that's what drives her to practice every day. But then she's also got a penchant for for heavy weapons and and trying to blow them up in all sorts of different ways. So it's a combination of the two. Why does she wear a pink shirt? Just to, because she's a girl, and and sometimes right. girls wear pink, pink shirt. Girls don't have to wear pink. And, it, and it's just like she's like the, the Blues Brothers are in. Um, the big band in Chicago, and so obviously she wants to look a bit like him and channel that kind of vibe, but then she wants to stand out a little bit as well. So she puts the pink shirt on, so she, they're like, Hey, who's this cool customer? Yeah, Ooh, yeah. I like what you're doing with the twist on the uh, on the typical uniform there, snazzy. Uh, how long have you been playing the guitar, Adam? On and off. Couple of months, I, I didn't go a spell of I I no I stopped I stopped playing for fourteen years, so <laughs> bit of a gap. Right. Uh, give us give us give us a rough a rough estimate. Twenty seven years. So say thirteen years if you've had fourteen years off. Yeah. yeah. All right. You're master at the instrument yet? No, but I'm not dedicated to it. I I constantly okay. find myself struggling for time to play. Okay. I think if I wanted to kill somebody by playing guitar, then I yeah. would. 
probably be pretty good at it. You'd be more now. motivated. Yeah. If you could swing your arm hard enough to hit that perfect chord to the death chord. Not just like garroting him with a string or something like that. Yeah, less practice. Take the feet off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> I, I've never heard of the death note before, but I have heard of the brown note. Yes. <laughs> Death Note's a very good uh, anime, manga, uh, live yeah, action is, film. Uh, yeah. If she couldn't kill them, I suppose she could make them shit yeah. themselves. And that's going to yeah. slow them down. <laughs> I don't think him making them shit themselves would be bad enough. And I think she she wants to go... What inspired me with the Sonic or the Shockwave was... Scott Pilgrim. Going a step further than what happens when... They say when a bomb lands near people and there's that shockwave and it, and it takes all the air out of their lungs and... They look pristine, don't they? And I know it's quite a morbid conversation. <laughs> like Christopher Lee saying to Peter Jackson, Peter, have you ever seen somebody who's been hit by a bomb wave? <laughs> <laughs> Peter Jackson went, yeah, I flew the Enola Gay. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, have you ever seen a man with his chest caved in by a sonic trumpet <laughs> have you yeah, ever man. seen a man who's been hit with the brown note peter <laughs> i have and let me tell you there was quite a lot of poo <laughs> and it was uh, splattered more sporadically not like this not uniform <laughs> you see in films people when they when they're shitting they, they make sounds like this but in real life of course it sounds more like <laughs> all right if there are no further questions for adam i will bring us home did uh oh, just a quick question for you all did anybody spot my uh simpsons chum in there uh yeah the uh yeah uh, i did um i've forgotten what it was now though yeah but I do like that idea of you having some Simpsons chum in there and we can try and find each plan. Contabulous fab traptions from The Simpsons as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I had yeah, that that's, in mind. Uh, yeah, that's Dr. Horatio Humpernickel and Fantabulous Contraptions. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck six. It's a <laughs> Troy McClure's big comeback <laughs> film, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> right, it's, right. Uh, my uh, Simpsons chumming was um, the Hillbilly Bugger Boys. Oh, Hillbilly was, Bugger uh, Boys, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was yeah, um, what... Homer says the Who were originally called. Right. <laughs> <laughs> who huddle? <laughs> All right, then I shall bring us home. After being jilted by Jake, my anger toward him is so bone-shakingly prodigious, I can't even shoot straight. When I fire my automatic weapon at the Brothers Blue, it's actually harder for me to miss. Yet somehow I do, and then Jake charms his way past me, leaving me alone again. For a second, I'm transported back to that unhappiest of days. I see the altar in front of me. Family and friends sitting, waiting expectantly for what should have been the happiest day of my life. I see that beautiful white dress flowing elegantly down to the vivid red carpet. The feeling of abandonment that has been ever-present since the wedding that never was threatens to overcome me. I want to return to my mother's fertile, tender womb and shut it all out. But something moves nearby, catching my eye and tearing me from my spiral. I see it scurry by. It's just a rat. A rat. My mind leaps through the years of therapy I've had since Jake left. Rat. The love rat. That's how my therapist would refer to him. 
She told me that whenever I spiral, I should take deep breaths, count to ten, and forgive myself. It isn't my fault after all. Jake just has a power over me, and the shame is on him for repeatedly abusing it. Following my therapist's advice, I close my eyes and inhale. I come to the conclusion that though it wasn't easy seeing Jake again, it has given me the closure I needed to finally let him go. He is indeed nothing more than a dirty love rat and not worthy of my love. I reach into my pocket and pull out a palm-sized remote detonator. I know it didn't work out too well last time, but second time is the charm and I have a good feeling about this one. I listen for the sound of the bluesmobile starting up, open the safety cover and flip the red switch. An earth-shattering boom rings through the tunnel. I decide to forgive myself and will remember my time with Jake with fondness. You could say I loved him to pieces. You could say I loved him to pieces. <laughs> Thank you, that's better. <laughs> I, I got lost there, so... Basically, she has some kind of therapy to decide that she doesn't need to do anything about him, but then she, she does kill him. She does kill him. In a nutshell, in a nutshell, in a nutshell, she just puts a remote bomb on the car instead of, you know, she does it on the, on the DOS house. This time she just does it on the car. Therapy, car bomb. What would happen there is the car would explode and Jake and Elwood would get out of the car as if nothing happened and dust off their lapels and, and Elwood would go, eh. Gonna have to get a new carburetor. Have to get a new carburetor. <laughs> He's shocked. And then he just walk off. Yeah, well, they'd, they'd have to walk to the to the tax office. They wouldn't make it. Ah, uh, okay. And uh, the noise would would uh, would draw the police attention as well. So, either way, they're up Slack Alley. Ah, uh, see, yeah. Once again, mm. we've stepped in to save your plan here, haven't we? By making you elaborate. Yeah. on those points because they do work them walking late yeah. and the police being attracted to the explosion yeah yeah all right the therapy bit was just a bit of a a bit of fl- a bit of padding because i'd fuck all else yeah sounds like it a little bit of sauce a little bit of sizzle all right some absolutely diabolical schemes there now it's time to vote as a reminder we had gaz's wily woman countertaculars Country Collaboration, Adam's Trumpet Terror, and Ben's Car Bomb Closure. Remember, each vote is worth exactly one point for the leaderboard. No more, but certainly no less. Interesting that everybody picked Kerry. Except you, yeah. Yeah. I know I was I was mulling over for a while, but then I thought, well, she's the most interesting character out of the lot. And she had the access to the weapons, which was the easy yeah, part for me. Yeah, that's it, yeah. And uh, I have uh, still have a huge crush on her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm hoping it, up in heaven she's looking down on me going, I approve, I approve. She's smiling down on you with Paddington Bear and the Queen saying, Wearing the gold God loving. Waiting for me. Doing it. God loving. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. All right. Since you seem very, very ready there, Adam, who have you voted for this week? Well, I've got to say, he's back to his winning ways, and it's Countertacular. Woo! Well, let's move on to Countertacular then. Who have you voted for? So, I think 
uh, Ben had the best plan this week, but I think that I provided it for him. He didn't. So I've gone for G Unit. G Unit, who have you voted for this week? Well, I want you to pay attention to how I've written this because I, I think it's very funny. I voted for Count Attacula. See how I've written that. <laughs> it's like a headstone. <laughs> to the Peril Pals, I've written the O in Count really, really small. So Count looks like yeah. another word. I brought this on yeah. myself. Oh, I could have edited that bit out. You might have to explain that to me. <laughs> right, and uh, since I can't vote for myself, I've gone for the, the next best plan, which was Howling Mad Countertacular. Oh, look at that. Oh. Clean sweep. Well, well, Clean well. Sweep. Okay, so that's uh, that spiced things up. Gaz, what has it done to the diabolical leaderboard? Spice things up. Well, to recap, that was three <laughs> points for Countertacular and one for myself. So that puts the scores at... In the lead with 14 points is Countertacular. Joint second place with nine points each are Adam and Ben. But just behind, just behind with seven points is your humble hero, Gaz. (laughs) (laughs) Just a humble bloody hero. I'd say you're a humbug rather than a humble hero. (laughs) You're definitely an underdog. Who doesn't love an underdog story? <laughs> All right, Counter Tackler, you'll be hosting next week. Please tell us what film you're forcing us to watch. Well, this is a film that is very dear to my heart. One of my favourite films and also, I think, just technically one of the best films ever made. Song of the South? <laughs> <laughs> the film that we will be watching and uh, attempting to sympathise with the villain for will be Blade Runner. Oh, nice. Which cut? Well, the final cut, because that's the most readily available. However, my preferred cut is the director's cut. We'll get into that in in some detail. All right. Well, that's it for another episode. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow us on your podcast platform of choice so you never miss an episode. But most importantly of all, tell your friends about us. Growing up, We were just four sad little nerds with no real friends or dreams. Well, not me, but certainly those of three. (laughs) And now we're grown-ups, and we still don't have as many friends as we'd like. Again, not me, but certainly the other three. (laughs) So please share your friends with us. These three. Like I say, I've got quite a few friends already. (laughs) I I don't need any. I I hate people. Yeah, I think I think we know that we're all there, yeah, right? And I think I think Gaz yeah. will reject any advances by anybody. So uh, I think we're lucky yeah, that we're please, friends please with each other. And just leave it at that. <laughs> I got exactly three friends is enough. It's the Seinfeld magic. It's, he has the same conversation with somebody in that, right? Like I just don't have room for another friend right now. Follow us on the usual social medias at Diabolical Pod throughout the week for more tonsil jazz. And join us next time when we'll be discussing Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. And as always, remember, it wasn't a lie. It was just bullshit. <laughs> very nice, very nice. Oh, sing. What was the song in the credits? <laughs> 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 <laughs>
What was the song in the credits? What's up, Tiller? What was the song in the credits? Can't remember. Is it I need you? credits? Everybody needs somebody. Everybody. It's got that. It's got that um, thing where they show all the people and then they put the names in front of them who played it and stuff. They did, mm. didn't they? Yeah, I forget yeah, what it was I now. I can't fucking remember. And I thought that's what we're going to sing at the end of this episode. Oh, I think it was. My girl wants it. to party all the time, party all the time, party <laughs> all the time. Gaz, can I, hear, can I hear your rendition of Minnie the Moocher, Gaz? Uh, yes, Gaz, go for it. Heidi, 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 hi. Hoody, 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 that's impressive, Craig. Can't tackle Fuck you. <laughs> uh, uh, is, that, know, is that Wembley? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so good. <laughs> Somewhere in here we've got uh, three, and we don't collect these at all, but we've got three Funko Pops of, of Fred. One with his crown and cape, one with his yellow jacket and the white and red striped uh, pants. Who's a Fred? young one in the Mercury, in the Harlequin oh. outfit. You call yeah. him Fred, you know, your first, first, um, first name basis. Yeah. My pal Farouk. Sarah? Is that his yeah. name? Yeah, that's right. All right, I'm going to stop the record. Here we go. Cool. Stop. All right, then I shall bring us home. After being jilted by Jake, my anger toward him is so bone-shakingly prodigious, I can't even shoot straight. When I fire my automatic weapon at the brother, well, gets my vote. I'd love if anyone would have the balls to do that one week. It'd probably be you, but I'd love to see someone just completely fucking write it off and just do nothing. Just go, nah, fuck it. Just like, just like head in the hands, just. I think I, I was close to it last week with the mummy. I couldn't see the looks in the moon. So I was like, oh, yeah. I'm going to pack this in. I'm going to pack it in. Really retire from podcasting like, mid podcast. I can say a looks in the moon now, but I was looking at the text and going, I can't fucking say it. <laughs> just by reading it. <laughs> <laughs> fucking ridiculous. And I even wrote it phonetically so I could say it properly and I couldn't fucking say it. You're under arrest for the murders of Moses Lack and Apu in the house of Beth, uh, 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 Just Mo. Just Mo. <laughs> it's my uh, uh, Zach Gillifaniakis or whatever again. <laughs> it's that all over again, isn't it? <laughs> uh, oh. Here we go. I'm just, just going to go from the top. Let's see. 